Hi, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of History Matters. It's your host, Keith Plymers. I'm here by myself again, as Pat is still on vacation. I'm here with a very special guest, my good friend, Dr. Tawny Paul. Tawny teaches British social and economic history in the 18th century in the UK. She's working on a project that's at the intersection of two really critical issues right now. Debt and mass incarceration have been huge political and social issues. And Tawny's work, which looks at the debtor's prison in the 18th century, looks at the intersection of those issues historically. So thanks a lot for being here, Tawny. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit about the debtor's prison? Yeah, so I guess the first thing to say is that in the 18th century, there was in Britain a system of what I think we can call mass incarceration. So this was a prison that a lot of people went to, and it was mostly middle-class people. So we think that about one in every five middle-class men in 18th century Britain would have ended up in the debtor's prison at some point during their lives. Wow, that's a staggering statistic. Yes. How does someone wind up in the debtor's prison? Okay, so it's an interpersonal system. So whereas incarceration today is imposed by the state, the debtor's prison was a system wherein an individual creditor who had a debtor who owed the money would decide to put that person in prison. So it's a civil system rather than a criminal system. Right. So the biggest prison or the biggest prison population in the 18th century isn't from the expansion of law, of criminal law. It's coming out of civil law. Yeah, it's coming out of civil law. And and actually, it's interesting that you mentioned the word expansion there, because what was going on in the 18th century was that they had um, an imprisonment system that was kind of a holdover that had been around since really the medieval period. And it hadn't been reformed. And it hadn't been reformed to take into account the ways that the economy had changed. And so that's how so many people end up in prison. There aren't really laws passed to protect people as their economic roles and economic lives are changing. And so what are some of the ways in which the economy is changing at the time? This is the period directly preceding industrialization. I hesitate to say that because I don't like thinking of the 18th century as this kind of lead up to the Industrial Revolution. But it is a period when there's a lot of expansion happening. So overseas trade is really picking up. This is really the period when global imperial trade becomes a big thing for Britain. Locally or kind of interregionally, trade is, is happening on a greater level than it had before. There are all sorts of agricultural reforms and reforms in how landholding happens in this period. We get a lot of movement of people off the land into cities. So it's really the beginning of what we might call the modern economy that happens in this period. Yeah, and credit is a key part of that, right? Credit has been around previously, but would you say in the 18th century that you see an expansion of credit networks? Yeah, so let's talk for a minute about what credit looks like in the 18th century and how it works, because I think this is so important for understanding the debtor's prison. So you have to imagine an economy where there aren't banks. So there were banks in the 18th century. In fact, this is when the banking system as we know it was really founded. However, the banks that existed were more for use as investment opportunities. And they weren't banks as we know them today in terms of places where people would put their savings and where they could get little kind of small amounts of credit. On top of that, there was a major shortage of coinage in this period, as there actually had been through the early modern period. But it becomes really acute in the 18th century because the economy is picking up, people are engaging in more transactions on a day-to-day -day basis, and they don't have coin to do so. So if you can imagine a situation wherein every time you have any kind of ordinary day-to-day -day commercial transaction, there's no financial institution to be a mediator in that, and you don't have coin, how is this gonna happen? Well, it happens using credit. So imagine every time you get out your debit card to pay for something, or every time you get cash out of your wallet, you're actually having to have a credit transaction or a credit agreement take place with the person you're buying from. That's how credit works. And how formalized is it? Is the idea that I just go to you and say, Tawny, I'd like to buy some grain so I can go make bread. 
can you give me some grain and then I'll give you something else later. I'll give you money when I get it. How does it work between people? Is it very formal or is it kind of informal? So it's pretty informal. It's pretty informal. One of the things that historians like to talk about in this period is the rise of paper money and paper forms of credit. So we get new things like bonds, which are supposed to be more secure. But those are actually for really large financial transactions. And your ordinary day-to-day kind of stuff happens in an informal way, and it tends to happen on accounts. So if, say, I'm a shopkeeper and Keith, you were a person, as you are, um, <laughs> and you came to me to buy things, I, you would have an account with me and I would allow you to buy things in small amounts and you would rack up a debt to me, which we would probably have some sort of agreement about when you were supposed to pay it off. But in reality, I would have to just put up with waiting for as long as I needed to wait for you to pay me back. Yeah, so it's almost like I'm running a tab And then at some point you say, okay, tabs do pay up. Yeah, exactly. I'm running a tab. Now, what happens at the end of this? How does this cancel out? Well, people would have what they called reckonings. And so they would get together and they would look at each other's accounts and things would would kind of cancel out sometimes. But also what would happen is that credits and debts would get passed around. So say I then buy something from someone else and I need to get credits from them to pay for it, well, I could actually transfer the debt that you owed me to that other person. And this this is one of the things that happens in the 18th century that becomes a real problem is that trade is expanding, credit networks are expanding, and this happens in this really informal way wherein people are just passing IOUs around. And so within a community, all of these debts are getting transferred from person to person We get situations where people end up holding debts and they don't even know the person that that debt belongs to. And that becomes a major problem because when you need to collect, if you know the person who you're collecting from, there are all sorts of social relationships that are going to go into your decision-making process. So if the person who owes you a debt is your neighbor or your friend, you're probably going to give them a little bit more leeway. If there's someone you've never even heard of before because you now live in an urban community that's large enough that you don't know anyone, you might not be quite as patient. You might chuck them in debtor's prison because you want that that debt to be paid up quickly. Does that relationship go the other way so that if I'm your neighbor and I owe you this debt for grain that I feel guilty because I have to see you every day, so I might be more inclined to pay if I have the money But if I'm several neighborhoods away and my debt has been sold by you to someone else to someone else, that then this person three neighborhoods over, I may say, well, out of sight, out of mind, I'm not terribly inclined to pay off that debt either. Do you mainly see it happening from the perspective of creditors, that creditors tend to be a bit more lenient on their friends and neighbors, whereas less so on people who are distant from them? Yeah, I mean, that... That happens. The other thing that happens is the kind of inverse or underbelly of of what you've just described, and that is that I might feel obligated to offer credit or to loan money to someone who I know is not a good bet, but they're my friend or they're my relative, so there's an obligation there that I will have to honor, and it probably means that I'm going to be out the money. Oh, but then, of course, that introduces a whole new way of thinking about credit, right? There's all this literature about trust and its role in credit. And I feel like in situations like that, you can see where trust plays a critical role. But a big part of your project is getting at that underbelly Mm -hmm. of this economy of trust, Mm -hmm. at the ways in which, well, we're neighbors, we loan each other a little bit of money, it's our mutual respect, or it's at the very least our social bonds that allows that lending network to function. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, you talk about the the darker side of that. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about what that darker side looks like? Yeah, yeah. What I'm really talking about is when credit goes wrong. When credit is going right, when it's working, it's a really important part of how a community is structured and what holds people together. Because you have to imagine that because of all this exchange of credit, All of these neighbors within a community are indebted to one another. This provides a kind of web of obligation that forms really the basis of social bonds. You care about the financial well-being of your neighbor because you're tied to them. So 
it can be a really good thing. And I think it's important to emphasize that. However, what happens when it goes wrong is that because it's so personal, going wrong gets personal too. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So what do I mean by that? People decide to send each other to debtor's prison for a lot of different reasons. And if we think about this in neoclassical economic terms, then we would want to know whether the debtor's prison was rational, whether it was functional, whether it was utilitarian. And we'd be looking at things like, if you put someone in debtor's prison, are you likely to get your money back? And people were worried about that. And there are ways in which putting someone in prison was a way of getting repaid. It was a form of coercion. It was a really, really aggressive way to to make, to force someone to pay you. At the same time, though, given this dark underbelly of a social credit system, you could be really angry at someone for not paying you back because there's this system of honor that underlies all of this. And when you owe so- when you loan someone credit because you trust them and you trust them based on a social relationship that you have with them, when they don't pay you back, that's a social transgression as well. And so you might use the debtor's prison as part of an interpersonal kind of interaction. Right. And I think that's something that's often lost when we think about modern credit and debt relationships. Mm-hmm. If Wells Fargo gives me a loan and then I default on the loan, there's not, you know, in popular rhetoric, people may say, oh, well, he defaulted, he's not trustworthy, something like that. But Wells Fargo isn't going to send me a note that says, you've betrayed our trust and we're (laughs) deeply hurt. Our parents knew each other and for generations our families have been close and now you've left me out in the cold with no money to pay my own obligations. It's it's depersonalized in a way. And in your case, it's not. It's intimate, right? It's it's intimately personalized. And this this gets at another thing, which is how credit ratings work, which also sits at the basis of all of this. So Wells Fargo, I don't know, how does Wells Fargo determine what our credit is? You know, they'll look at things like your income, they'll look at assets you have, they'll look at previous loan history that's disclosed to credit rating agencies, and credit rating agencies are a big part of this, right? They look at all of your available financial data and say, okay, well, he's paid his credit card bill on time every month, or the water company will say they've never issued a non-payment notice for a water bill, something like that. And then you get a credit score, right? You always see the commercials. What's your score? Are you a 750? Are you a 500? Something like that. So we have this whole quantitative mechanism that gives it a sort of objective kind of feel right now, or it's meant to give this sort of objective feel Mm -hmm. in that you're not Tawny Paul with X character with this kind of character and this set of friends in this relationship. You are a number, 750, 800, 600, 500, whatever it might be, but it's yeah. depersonalized yeah. and it is expressed algorithmically. It's expressed through an assessment of through data analysis. And I think yeah. In your case, that's not the way creditworthiness works. Right. So in the 18th century and in the early modern period more broadly, the way that creditworthiness works is, well, first of all, it's not a faceless bank that decides what your credit is based on a set of numbers. It's knowledge and acquaintanceship with you as a person. And credit was based on a few different things. So property was important. People had a really clear understanding of what other people owned. And so goods could sit at the basis of social and financial worth, right? So say I'm a creditor, someone wants to borrow from me or wants to take um, goods on accounts from me if I'm a shopkeeper. Well, if I know that they have a house that's got some pretty nice furnishings in it and that if they don't pay me, that I can take those goods as the value of the debt, then I might be more likely to lend to them. So that's one thing. The other thing that's really important is behavior. So how someone acts, how they behave, and then that links up to things like what they wear, what they look like, do they have good manners, do they look like a respectable sort of person. And people in the 18th century refer to that as character, character or reputation. And character and reputation were in fact so important that if people were publicly insulted, they could take public insult to the court and claim that their credit was ruined. 
And in fact, public insult did ruin credit. So yeah, so it's taken as a really, it's a serious offense for me to say, oh, you're a pauper or something like that. Or you, you're untrustworthy. You're going to welch on your debt, something like that. It's almost, it's a libel or it's a slander. Yeah, Yeah, it is. And then the other thing to note that's really important is that the credit worthiness of men and women was judged on different terms. So this is a really, really gendered system of credit. So if we look at things like public insults, we know that women were slandered sexually much, much more than men were. That's not to say that men weren't, but chastity and sexual honor was a really important component of credit for women. And for men, that wasn't quite so important. It was more about business acumen and honesty and trustworthiness. So even the financial networks that people depended on were bound up really tightly with ideas about morality, Mm -hmm. good behavior, public Mm -hmm. comportment, and private comportment Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's a system that in some ways is very alien from our own. On the other hand, every time you hear something on television talking about TVs in the house but not paying a bill, some of the public rhetoric that's used around people who are in debt today, I think attempts to reinsert that moral language into the way that we talk about it in a way that for an 18th century person would probably feel very, very familiar. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think in general, there is a way in which the financial and the social are very disentangled for us. Mm -hmm. Like my credit rating and whether I'm a nice person and have friends and people like me are two completely different things. Whereas in the 18th century, you really can't disentangle the social from the economic. They're so closely bound because your financial worth is based on your social reputation. However, I think you're really right to point out some similarities in terms of debt. So not so much credit, but debt in that not paying a debt is considered kind of dishonest, you know, and I think there's a lot of rhetoric today whether this reflects reality or not, that people go into debt because of extravagant spending, that they've bought too many consumer goods. And, you know, in the 18th century, people were really worried about, especially lower and middle class people, spending above their means. So buying things that were too fancy, buying things that were too expensive that they knew they would never be able to pay off. Right. And so debt becomes a way to kind of define class boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great point. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the debtor's prison affected one group particularly, as you've shown, and that is people of the lower middling sort or middling class of people. And so we're going to talk a bit about that when we come back after the break. So stay tuned. folks. We're back after the break. I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Tawny Paul, to talk a bit more about the debtor's prison. The debtor's prison, as you said a bit last time, tends to impact one group of people more than anyone else. So who is it that is most threatened by the debtor's prison or winds up in the debtor's prison the most? Okay, so first of all, it's men, which is something that we should come back to. But it's in social class terms, it's what we might call the lower middling sort. Mm-hmm. So the middling sort was kind of the precursor to what we would call the middle class today. People in the 18th century didn't use a language of class and they didn't have a kind of class consciousness that we think of today. So we don't use we don't use class when we're talking about this in the 18th century. We use the word sorts. People referred to the lower sort the middling sort, and the better sorts of people. And um, the middling sort were this kind of large, amorphous group of people who really developed uh, in the 18th century. So these were people who were involved in commerce. They, They were people who weren't born into a kind of rank. They were people who made money and and sort of made something of themselves. So a lot of that rhetoric about middle class, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, the upward mobility, the desire to be upwardly mobile, that kind of comes out out of this group in the 18th century. But they're not big merchant traders or anything like that, right? They could be. So it's a really big, really big group of 
of people that's kind of ill-defined. So it's anyone from like your humble craftsmaker, shoemaker, baker, butcher, candlestick maker, that kind of class of people, all the way up to large merchants. And at the time they said that you had to have a minimum income of about 50 pounds a year to be a member of this middling sort. And that allowed you to acquire consumer goods to the level that you needed to to be part of this group. Because it's a lot of it's about social display. It's about conspicuous consumption. So we can define this group in terms of the jobs they did, in terms of the kinds of activities that they did, um, having leisure time, in terms of the types of things they owned, the house that they lived in and, and how much how much money they had but the span of people is huge and so the people who end up in debtors prisons are the ones on the kind of lower boundary of this group so craftsmen tradesmen shopkeepers people who are involved in commerce but on a really small scale so not your big international merchants but people who will have a kind of independent household business but who will be living right there on the line between success and failure. So they might look like they're doing pretty well, but it takes very little to just push them right over the edge. And you have a, I know that you always bring up this great quote from Daniel Defoe, right? That there are people who are kind of born into poverty, there's the poverty of birth, and then there's the poverty of accident. And so these are the people who fall in through the poverty of accident, right? Yeah, so he distinguishes between what he calls the poverty of inheritance and when we think about the poor, that's what that is. It's people who are born into it. They're probably going to live their lives in poverty. And they're really almost a class of people that we would call the poor. And then there's what he calls the poverty of disaster. And those are the people who fall out the bottom. And there are a lot of people who, in the 18th century, live with that poverty of disaster hanging right above them. And the disaster, the consequence of disaster for a lot of these people is the debtor's prison, right? It is, exactly. So when people fail, when people from this particular class or sort, social group, fail, they end up in debtor's prison. What's it like to be inside a debtor's prison? What happens? How do you wind up inside of one? And when you're inside, what is life like? Okay, so I'm going to answer one question first, which is how you end up there. That's actually a really complicated question. And my research has uncovered really three ways in which you end up in debtor's prison and why, and it highlights why this particular group of people is so vulnerable. So the first reason is legal. It has to do with the legal system of incarceration in 18th century Britain, which as I mentioned before the break, hadn't really changed much for several hundred years. Um, so there was a kind of three-part system. First of all, at the high end was bankruptcy. And actually, bankruptcy laws did develop right in the early 18th century. But in order to be eligible for bankruptcy, you had to be a trader. So essentially, what that meant was large merchants. And you had to owe a debt of at least 100 pounds, which is a lot of money in the 18th century. So people who are kind of in the middle can't, um, can't declare bankruptcy. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there are small claims courts, and that's for people who um, owe 40 shillings or less. So these were courts that were developed really to enable tradesmen to collect debts from very petty, petty debtors and from the poor. And then also, I mean, if you were very poor, you would have access to all sorts of different forms of poor relief from your parish. But if you were in the middle and you owed between 40 shillings and 100 pounds, you really had no legal protection. And so if you owed money to your creditor and you couldn't pay and the creditor decided that that debt was due, they could choose to put you in prison. And for creditors, that was oftentimes the best option that they had. Okay, so that's the first reason is this kind of legal being in the middle. The second reason has to do with the way that credit was structured. And so this goes back a bit to what we were talking about before the break. These lower middling people who are traders are taking on debt of their own in order to conduct their business. So if they're a shopkeeper, 
shopkeepers would have been taking debts on from larger merchants to get goods which they would then sell on. People who are craftspeople might be taking on debts for raw materials which they'd be then working up and selling on. And then they had to offer credit to their customers. So they were dependent on their customers paying them in order for them to pay off their own debts. And that's a really dicey position to be in. And what it meant was that if you look at how lower middling people's wealth was constituted, most of their wealth was in the form of debts owed to them. Oftentimes, multiple times, worth multiple times more than the value of their house, the value of their goods, the value of any property that they owned. And the problem with that kind of wealth is a problem of what we call liquidity. So I might be rich in that I'm worth 500 pounds, but 450 of that might be in the form of debts that someone owes to me. And that means if I owe someone else money, mobilizing that wealth or that value is almost impossible. I can't do it. So you get a lot of people in prison who actually have wealth, but they have wealth that they can't mobilize in the way that they need to to pay off their own debts. Right. So the idea is that if I'm I'm rich, I have this 500 pounds, but I owe you 50 pounds, I might have to go and contact 3 or 12 or 15 people and say to them, okay, Tawny, is, Tawny needs to be paid, which means I need to be paid. Mm -hmm. So it's this kind of unwieldy and slow-moving process. And once you say to me, okay, tab has come due, it's time to pay up, it's something that could extend deep through a community, right? Yeah, yeah, through this kind of domino effect. Yeah, so there are some really serious structural problems with credit in the 18th century that are that are causing this to happen. But then, very peculiarly, the third reason why people end up in prison is because creditors think that they should be there. So whereas there are all these structural reasons that we can see in hindsight, people at the time really latched on to moral issues of failure. And when creditors wrote about their decision to incarcerate, a lot of times they focused on perceptions of behavior and debtors defrauding them or being dishonest or taking wealth that they had and hiding it so that they were refusing to pay rather than being unable to pay. So there's this very kind of social interpersonal layer on top of these other legal and structural issues. Are there people at the time who have a sense of this kind of structural issue and say, well, a poor working man doesn't have a chance in the world? Or does everyone tend to trade in this kind of moralistic language? There's a lot of rhetoric around disaster and misfortune, and especially amongst reformers. There are campaigns to reform the debtors' prisons throughout the 18th century, and one of the things that those people really focus on is that there's a difference between malfeasance and misfortune, but the law fails to make that distinction, and that it's really just up to individual creditors to decide whether their debtors deserve to go to prison or not. So there is a bit of a, there is a, bit of a debate there. Right, but they take on that moral language and say, yes, there are people who defraud, who cheat, who do things like that, but that's mm -hmm. not the entirety of people who default on their debts. And, and the appropriate reform is not to say abolish the prison altogether, but rather to limit the group who it's going to punish to just those who engage in malfeasance. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when I read these documents where creditors are writing about their decisions, I mean, I kind of get the sense that are they actually doing this because they think they're going to get paid back or because they're angry or a variety of motives, but they're publicly stating that it has to do with the debtor's character? I mean, I think there's kind of, there's this way in which it's deemed appropriate to really demonize people who are being sent to debtor's prison. There's language that they use to justify their actions and that may or may not reflect what they actually believe. Right, so in some ways it's a limit that our ability to get inside their heads is constrained by the fact that we only have the stuff they wrote down, and in part because of the legal structure that existed, the stuff you wrote down was going to be about this person is a cheat and a fraud, and they're they're living high on the hog and not paying me the money they owe in order to make your case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we didn't get to your second question, which was about what it was like to be imprisoned. 
Yeah. Do you want to talk about what it was like to be in jail for this? I would love to. It depended on who you were and it depended on where you lived. So there were actually only a few dedicated debtors prisons in Britain, and those were primarily in London and then in some of the regional capital cities, like York had one, Lancaster had one. Most debtors who were imprisoned, though, went to the town jail. So every town would have had a jail, and every jail could have housed um, debtors. And so most of these institutions would have a couple of different rooms and so you'd have criminals in one room and then you'd have debtors in another room. Now debtors in these cases made up the majority of prisoners, 60 to 70 percent of prisoners in Britain in the 18th century. So even though when we think about prison we always think about criminals going to prison, actually debtors were the predominant group of people who were being incarcerated. Right, so if you had three rooms, two of them might be for debtors. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So in some of the bigger debtors' prisons, like the Fleet in London, they were really peculiar kinds of places and that you could, if you were a debtor with means, which sounds like kind of a contradiction in terms, you could actually rent your own room. And you could furnish it as you wished. And there was a little bit of porosity in these institutions. And so you could actually go out of the prison. You could come and go from the prison. People could come in and visit you. So it's this kind of weird semi-incarceration. Some people can end up in situations like that. Uh, their cases are really visible because they tended to be higher status people. And they tended to write about their experience. So we know quite a lot about them. The majority of people, though, were stuck in pretty poor conditions. They were deliberately subjected to hardship because it was believed that if you put a person in really miserable conditions, it would force them to come up with a way of paying their debt. So in Scotland, there was actually a law called squalor carceris, so being incarcerated in squalor. And these people were denied light, they were denied fresh air, they were really deliberately subjected to hardship and subjected to conditions that I would consider to be violent. And now, the deliberately denying them things, in some ways it reminds me of a place like Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, which was built by reformers with the idea of isolation as a way of reforming character and that mm -hmm. the isolation was supposed to be penitent, that you were given a Bible and you were given a trade in there and you were going to learn how to do something productive. But the harshness of the isolation, which people remarked on at the time, Dickens thought it was particularly cruel, yeah. was justified because it was meant to reform you. Is the reason for these harsh conditions of the squalor carceris, is that tied to a kind of reformist message, or is it is it more punitive in the way it's being used in these debtors' prisons? So there's a difference between how it was supposed to be used according to the law and then practice. So according to the law, the, the prison was not a punishment. The prison was a place where your body was kept in custody until you could pay your debt. So the law basically assumed that you could pay your debt and you just needed to be held until that happened. Um, and part of the reason for this was actually really good because people people could flee very easily and that was fleeing your debts was a problem. So part of the idea was if someone's going into debt, they might run away. Um, so we, we want to put their body in prison so that they pay up and they can't kind of leave and take their debt with them. So that's the legal reason for imprisonment. In practice, it's a form of punishment. It's so very clearly a form of punishment. And, you know, that just becomes clear in terms of how creditors used the prison. Very few of them were paid back. It was very obvious that they would never get paid back because as soon as you put someone in prison, you deny them their, their labor, their capacity for labor. They can't work. Everyone else knows that they're in debt now all of their creditors are going to come forward and demand that they're paid. No one has the money to pay everyone off all at once. So their, I mean, their financial circumstances are just going to spiral downward. So this really clearly seems to me to be a punitive space. And then on top of that, these debtors were, there were various ways you could get out of prison, but really it was up to your creditor to decide that you were free to go. Creditors could and had the power to keep their debtors incarcerated almost indefinitely. 
So you don't get a term of you're in there for three months, two years, something like that. Nope. You're in as long as you're in until the person who put you in says, okay, they've paid me back or I'm not going to get paid back, but they've suffered enough. Exactly. And in a lot of cases, the person who put them in would actually be paying to keep them there. So this was a sort of semi-privatized system wherein either the person who was in prison or their creditor had to pay jail fees for their maintenance. And one of the things that could happen is that the court could determine that a person was too poor to pay their element their own for their own food and then the creditor would be responsible for paying for their food or that person would be let go and a lot of creditors actually chose to pay to keep their debtors fed and in prison now obviously if they can't pay to feed themselves they're never going to be able to pay back the debt so how on earth do you justify that kind of dynamic other than as a, as a form of punishment. Right. It's just got to be punitive. Yeah. So I think we'll turn back to where we began, which was men. Yeah. So men are the group that's mainly being incarcerated, right? Yeah. So about 95% of the debtors who were incarcerated in 18th century Britain were men. Um, now, the reason for this was because of property law. So under laws of coverture, when a woman got married, her husband uh, became the legal owner of her property, generally. There are a lot of kind of nuances to this, but that's generally what happens. Um, so women, married women, were not allowed to own their own property unless that was, had been specifically enumerated in their marriage contract. And that also meant that they weren't allowed to take debts on in their own name. However, they were allowed to spend their husband's credit. So in practice, what that meant was that men were much more vulnerable to imprisonment than women were, even though women were doing a lot of spending. So a wife can be out purchasing things, and then when that debt isn't paid, it's her husband who goes to jail rather than her. So the laws that were meant to enforce patriarchy and give mm. men responsibility, sole legal authority, and constrain women's abilities to make decisions for themselves? Yeah had a kind of backbite as well in that if you failed as a as one of these patriarchs you had a good chance of getting chucked into the debtor's prison as a result. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is so interesting because the economy is such a source of power for men in this period and I think you could say still is today. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that this idea that that this economic power becomes a point of vulnerability is just such a fascinating dynamic to look into. At the same time, while men are both powerful and vulnerable here, yeah. the debtor's prison doesn't just affect the person who's incarcerated, right? And I think we see this a lot today in the way that people who are interested in prison reform have talked about the impact of mass incarceration on families and communities. Yeah. So can you talk a bit about what incarceration of predominantly men would do to their wives and their children in the 18th century. Yeah, so I'm glad you asked this because I think that this 5% of women is a little bit, it kind of hides women in a way that they, they were actually much more visible. So women are very intimately bound with the process of imprisonment and they're bound with it as creditors and as debtors. So we know that women had a really big role to play in credit markets. Um, as creditors, they were often the ones who would go out and collect for the, the family or the household through a process that was called dunning. So if you look at tradesmen's diaries, they would often send their wives out to collect on the debts. So that means like the beginning of the process that leads to imprisonment is actually initiated by women. And then as debtors, as the wives, as the daughters, as household members of debtors who are imprisoned, they're very, like, very drawn into this process. So we know that in some prisons, families actually went to debtors' prison with the person who, who was kind of officially put there. <laughs> yeah. And the names of those people never turn up in the records. So it kind of looks like prison is full of a bunch of individuals, but in some cases, prison was actually full of a lot of families. So that's one way in which um, families and households can be drawn in. The other thing, though, is that when we think about credit and debt, we think about individuals, but actually 
it was the debt and credit of a whole household with the patriarchal head as kind of the face of that credit or debt. So actually, what we're talking about when we talk about imprisoned debtors is not people, we're talking about households. And so when a person ends up in prison, that whole household fails. Their property is sold off, they have lost one productive member of the household. And as this is happening, women are managing it. Women are managing this process. So that when the courts go and ask people who are imprisoned about what kind of property they own, a lot of times they say, I don't know, ask my wife, because my wife is the one who's managing this and selling things off and paying for my debts. And we get women working really hard behind the scenes to get their husbands out and making agreements and just doing all of the negotiations that are necessary to secure the debtor's liberty. Wow. So it's something that has, even if it's just individuals being put in, the tentacles of incarceration reach out much more widely in society. On that note, I think we're going to take one final break and then we're going to come back for a short segment. Thanks very much for listening and we'll talk to you again after the break. All right, we are back for our final section. I'm here with my guest, Dr. Tawny Paul. One of the things that you've talked about before that I always found most striking about your research is just how pervasive the debtor's prison is and the way in which that creates a culture of fear in the 18th century. That for people often at the very worst moment in their lives, that's when they might expect, in addition to whatever misfortune just befell them, that people were going to come around asking for debt. So I was wondering if, in part, you could talk about how fear played a role in the 18th century debtor's prison, and 18th century society more broadly. The thing we have to keep in mind is that everyone, especially everyone of the middling sort, would have known someone who had gone to prison whether that was a neighbor, whether that was a family or household member, a friend. And even people who didn't know someone would probably walk past a prison every day because these prisons were located on the main street of most towns. So there's just this way in which imprisonment hovers over everyone's lives, and it's a constant threat for everyone. They know that if they can't pay if some sort of disaster befalls them, there's a really good chance that they're going to end up in debtor's prison. And that creates, I think very clearly, a culture of fear. And that culture of fear colored how people behaved in the economy. It, it colored the decisions that they made. It colored the way that they treated one another and their kind of outlook, their financial outlook in life. And I think that's one of the things that people don't really often appreciate about our current state of mass incarceration, that you occasionally get people who talk about this. But the way in which living in a community, and particularly black and brown communities in the U.S. is where this happens, where lots of, where you will know someone who's gone to jail, where jail is just this pervasive force looming over you, that you have commentators who will say, well... You're making bad decisions. Why didn't you plan ahead? Why didn't you do X, Y, or Z? But we often don't think about the ways in which mass incarceration exerts this huge emotional and psychic effect on people where it colors every aspect of their lives. And I think looking at the debtor's prison here, you see how it's very much performing that function in the 18th century, and it's something that we need to think about today as well. Yeah, and it's it's something, you know, when we're looking into the past, it's something that we have to imagine a little bit and fill in between the lines, because there's just so much that we don't know. These are people who didn't leave a lot behind, by and large, and the records that we have of them are their names, their occupations, and the debts that they owed in a prison register, and maybe a couple of court cases associated with that. Every once in a while, we'll get a diary or a journal, but that's pretty rare. So we know, for example, that today a lot of American families have to have conversations with their children about how you deal with arrest, because being arrested is actually such a common phenomenon that they can kind of expect that that's going to happen to them at some point. Did families in the 18th century 
have conversations about here's what you do if the bailiff comes. Probably. Here's where you can hide. Here's how you'll escape. Here's our family strategy for if this happens. So I think there are a lot of really intimate aspects of debt that families dealt with that we will never really know about for sure in the 18th century, but I think they must have been there. So one of the other things, too, about this that I think is really striking, because it's such a key aspect of how the middling sort are forming into a group is eight, in the 18th century, is that debt and incarceration become a part of identity. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think I would. I mean, one of the things to keep in mind about how this system works is when we think about creditors and debtors, I think we've gotten kind of used to in the modern era thinking about creditors as the big guys and debtors as the little guys. So the creditor is the big bank or the rich man and the and the debtor is the, is the poor person. And in fact, in the 18th century, these were all members of the middling sort. They were more or less the same types of people. And in some cases, they actually were the same people. You're both a creditor and you're a debtor in the 18th century. So... The reason why that's really important is because you can see how fear motivated how people treated one another. Creditors put debtors in prison because they were fearful of their own circumstances, because they were put under pressure to pay off their own debts. So in order to coerce the people who owed them money, prison was a tool. And part of what that does is mean it means that even in this world in which you have these dense social networks and credit networks that are binding people together, Mm -hmm. it's really difficult for any sort of solidarity, right? You always know that even if you're bound up with these people, that at some point they may dun you and you may wind up in jail or you may have to denounce them and send them to jail. So even in a world in which people are intimately bound together, they're also kept just a little bit separate and a little bit isolated from each other. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, back to your point about identity, if we think about what makes up the identity of a group of people, I mean, one of the things we can focus on is the conditions in which they live. Now, the middle class dream today is really about upward mobility. It's about, you know, getting a good job, getting rich, sending your kids off to the fancy college. I mean, there are all sorts of different measurements we can use, but we've heard a lot recently about the squeeze of the middle class. And I think what my research partly shows is that the very foundations of the middle class were built around debt, that being in debt and living on the edge and actually not having the kind of security that you aspire to is partly what has always been a feature of being middling. Right. So we hear a lot about the precariat today, Uh but you could talk very easily about an 18th century precariat. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think that, you know, forces us to reflect a little bit on some of the behaviors that we see the middling sort engaging with around consumption and display. You know, that's such a big thing in the 18th century, the pleasures of of consuming things. When you put that behavior against the background of precarity, that takes on a slightly different tone, right? I mean, are you consuming things in order to have pleasure because you're faced with so much insecurity, maybe? Right. So is it a kind of hedonistic outlet? On the other hand, since the way that you display yourself is so crucial to appearing creditworthy and not getting called up on your debts as it is, might you be consuming things in order to keep up appearances so that your creditors aren't going to call in your debts and you're consuming almost out of desperation? But so hedonism or desperation as motivating forces for consumption are a much darker story than the pleasures of shopping in the 18th century. Absolutely. And I think we also have to look at the kinds of things that people were spending their money on. So if people couldn't afford houses, if they couldn't afford land, but maybe their expendable income does allow them to to buy consumer goods, then that makes a little bit of sense. This came up with health insurance and iPhones right. most recently, right? When she said, well, you know, we're going to pass this health care plan, but maybe you'll just have to pass up buying that new iPhone in order to buy health insurance. And people said, well, there's kind of a big difference in cost between health insurance and an iPhone. 
you have a lot of cases in which people are saying it's good the debtor's prison exists. It's good these sorts of punishments exist because they're going to keep these people from getting above their station and and spending so much on consumption in a way that is socially threatening, right? Absolutely. I mean, there were people who believed that in the 18th century, failure was actually a good thing because it kind of kept people in their place. And so people started to spend above their means to try and ape their superiors, that failure kept them in check and kept kept the class system in line. So in closing, one of the things that's most inspired me to think about why your research just really shows how history matters to the way we should think about the world today is a study that was released by the Federal Reserve, which they surveyed Americans and found that roughly 46% of Americans didn't have enough money to cover a $400 emergency expense, and that they would need to resort to trying to find a loan, putting it on a credit card, borrowing it from family, something like that in order to cover it. And This statistic, I think, was shocking for a lot of people. The Atlantic had an article, The Seven Circles of American Financial Hell, that detailed the way in which a huge number of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, even ones who outwardly may appear to be secure and middle class. And there's this notion that this is in some way a new situation. But I think part of what your research does is show that this is a much deeper part of how capitalist economies have evolved since the 18th century, since the early modern period, and that fear, precarity, violence, and debt have long been a part of how we have both constructed our social structure and how we've created our networks of exchange and consumption. So thank you so much, Tawny, for taking us into the dark side of history. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks very much for listening. If you want to talk more about this, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Plimers. And Tawny, where can everyone find you? I'm at Tawny underscore Paul. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time.